The following is a production of the Lance J Radio Network and Best in the World Sports, a division of Definitive Visions Multimedia. The opinions and views expressed are certainly those of the host and do not represent the views of Lance J Radio Network or NBC Sports Radio. All right, you guys, bring it in. It is time for another edition of Offense, Defense, and Discourse. It's the place where we go to talk sports. It's me, your boy Brown, on the phone, deep in quarantine somewhere in Philadelphia. It's my co-host, Mr. Mike Jones. What's going on, my friend? Oh man, I am good. I know you are. I know. No. I know you are good. You got a taste I don't really of some like sports anyway. So yeah, but I, I am itching for sports. But other than that, I don't really like people that much. So so, so you in your this, element. You. They tell you yeah, to stay yeah. home and don't go near anybody. You were just like, you know, cool. I can do that. It's easy. Most uh, during see this is the during like regular life. Most days I'm walking around like I really wish people would just leave me alone. Mm-hmm. And now they actually have. Yes, see, and I love it. Mm-hmm. Now, are you binge watching any TV shows? Like, what are you doing to, to kill your time? What are you doing to spend time now? You. you Binge watching shows, uh, reading books. I was, I was binge watching a few shows, and we're now at a point where I'm looking for stuff to watch mm-hmm. because I'm out. But beyond that, you know, little reading. Mm-hmm. I still have a nice little quiet park not too far away that actually no one goes to, so. I can be out there by myself and still yeah. be distancing while I get a little exercise and fresh air. Yeah, because it, it's crazy, man. I, but, but I, I, that I in itself is a nice nice change, just to be able to have a change of scenery and get outside while still actually distancing. I was driving, and I had to, uh, I was actually out because I, I still have to go to work every day. And I'm driving home, and I'm around the art museum on uh saturday i believe it was because saturday was a real nice day and it was it was a nice day in between two really crappy weather days and you would have thought it was just you would have thought there was no quarantine there were you know people just walking around no masks you know just not doing nothing you know just just you know it was crowded people ice skating doing a whole bunch of stuff Man, I'm like, look, let me get home. Let me get home and let me get away from from people. I don't, I don't, you know, I, I don't need all that, man. They tell me to stay home and they say, hey, social distance. I'm cool. I'm with you. I'm with you. You know, let me just be home with my family. That's it. I don't need other people getting on my nerves. Let my family get on my nerves. You know, I. You know, li- listen to the doctors. Listen to the experts. Uh, you know, I look. Man, get get out. Well, see, that's a whole different conversation. Because <laughs> half the information you're hearing, I think, is laughable anyway. Mm-hmm. Or I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say that. I think the information that we get from actual biologists mm-hmm. and healthcare experts is fairly reliable. Mm-hmm. But there seems to be so much lost in translation once it gets to the masses that by the time it gets repeated, no one really understands what's going on. I feel like the information isn't that hard 
to truly decipher. It's not listen. if you know what words. Yeah. If, if you have to actually be a person who cares about the meaning of words. Most people don't these days. They just hear you talk and then think whatever they want. Yeah. No, you're right about that. You're right about that. But th- this is a sports show, and there was actual sports to talk about this past weekend. The NFL, yeah. the NFL draft was this weekend. Now, normally, I-, I am somebody who usually watches a lot of the draft. I am also somebody who complains about how much draft coverage is on. In the days leading up to it, I was like, it's too much. I'm not going to watch all of this. It's, it's too much. It, you know, it's th- it used to be two days. Then now it's three days. And, and I used to, uh, usually, you know, in a perfect sports world, when we're talking about the end of April, when the NBA playoffs have just started, the NHL playoffs are usually in full swing. Baseball season is here, and now you're getting ready for the draft. And for me, it's like, okay, I know that usually around this time of year, my attention is is drawn in a whole bunch of different directions. But this year, no, it's different because there is no baseball. There is no basketball. There is no hockey. There's just, you know, technically there's no football, but there was a draft. So well, with football, we're mm-hmm. still regularly scheduled because we're in the off season. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, so not, yeah, yeah. we had and the and the quarantine happened just after the combine ended. Mm-hmm. So football has been fortunate that because of scheduling, they haven't been too affected. Things have been different, mm-hmm. but given another couple weeks when when rookie mini camps were supposed to begin and that's when football will start to feel the difference yeah. because all these rookies, especially quarterbacks and receivers that have a lot of plays to learn mm-hmm. and they need those early reps, they're not going to get those. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So how much of the draft did you watch? I watched pretty much the first round in its entirety. Mm-hmm. The second and third round, I was checking on it in and out, but I can't say. I just watched that there and was glued to the TV. Mm-hmm. But I I pretty much, I was in and out with the draft and followed along with all the picks. I was, even when I wasn't watching, I was had my phone out with one of, my, one of those draft trackers and somebody's app to follow along. And so I was, I was tuned in even when I wasn't watching. So there weren't a lot of weren't a lot of surprises at the top of the draft. Top of the draft went the way not, you, you pretty much the way you thought it would be. Not the top five, top ten. So for you, so for you, what was the what would you say would be the first surprise? What was the what was the most what was the first thing, the first pick that kind of caught you off guard, made you say, "Whoa, what is happening here?" Dallas. Really? Yes. Now, why is that? The Dallas Cowboys, well, you know, they're always two different draft philosophies that many people have. The one is best player available, and the other is best player at the biggest need. 
Dallas simply went best player available because their biggest needs were on the defensive side of the ball. Their secondary, they could have addressed safety, they could have addressed corner. They already actually needed a corner, and then they lost Byron Jones. They could have. So while they did get a very good, very talented player in C.D. Lamb, and on paper their offense should be very explosive, which Mike McCarthy should have a lot of tools in his toolbox to work with going into his first season as a head coach in Dallas. But the first place my mind went was to his years in Green Bay. All those Aaron Rodgers years where they had an offense that could put up 27 to 31 points every game. But many games they gave up. 27 to 33 points in the game because there was not a lot of focus put in on the defense. Do you remember how excited Aaron Rodgers was at the beginning of last season when they won a close, low-scoring game and he just kept saying, we have a defense, we have a defense, we have a defense? Yeah. I think the opposite of that seems to be happening in Dallas right now. They will score points. But I don't know that they put enough attention into their defense for them to be able to take the next step that they need to take as a team. They'll be a different team, but I don't know that they necessarily made themselves as far as taking a next step towards winning a championship made themselves a better team. I think Dallas made them so I think what you're going to see from Dallas is going to make Dallas fans even more insufferable because I feel like what they're doing, like you said, kind of it, it, it looks like it's going along the lines of the way things were in Green Bay for so long where there was a lot of attention to offense. You had an offense that gave up a lot of points. But on the flip side, you had a defense that also gave up a lot of points. I could see a situation where if early in the early in the season, say Dallas has some favorable matchups. When the schedule co- when when the actual schedule of games, we know we know who they're going to play, but we don't know what order they're going to play them in. But when Dallas, if Dallas gets some favorable favorable matchups early, and you see Dallas putting up a lot of points, you see Dak Prescott just flinging the ball all over the place, flinging the ball all over the place, putting up big points in the first half, and then just handing the ball off to Zeke, you know, to eat up the clock at the end of the uh, at the end of the games. Dallas fans are going to be like, uh-oh, it's America's team again. America's team is back. And that's – I don't want to go through another and, NFL season listening to that. Is, and, but the thing is, if you look at Dallas this year, their problem wasn't scoring points. Mm-hmm. And when 
Early in the year, they played a lot of lesser opponents who had defensive issues. They really ran it up, mm-hmm. and they scored points all over the place. And later in the year, when they started got, getting into the meat of their schedule and got into some fights, while they still scored points some games, they gave up more points than they were scoring. Yeah, they did. I don't think they corrected that part of the problem. No, no. I like the CD Lamp pick, especially for us, because I think part of you know part of the issue where you and I are concerned is that we are both followers and fans of the Philadelphia Eagles, and that was a name that was on Eagles fans' radars for a long time, and there had been talk up into the draft, up until draft night, of the Eagles possibly trading up to get into a position where they can draft CD Lamp. Because they thought C.D. Lamb was, was the guy, you know, was the guy that, that could help Carson actually went, That talk actually continued right up until the moment that Dallas was on the clock. Because you pretty much knew nobody, Dallas and Philly weren't going to make a trade. Not in the first round. Not, any of, mm. not in the first round. But at any of those points between pick nine and pick 16, 15 or 16, whichever it was, the pick before Dallas, you're sitting there, at least part of you in the back of your mind, you're sitting there waiting when they announce the next team on the clock. You're waiting to see the next, is the trade in? Did somebody do it? Did the Eagles do a deal? Or then at 13 and 14, when when Tampa Bay and, New, and San Francisco swap picks, I was about to say New England because Tampa Bay is New England South now. But when Tampa Bay and San Francisco swap picks, you see the trade is in. The first thing you think when you see San Francisco made a trade, well, there was a lot of talk the Eagles might want to make a trade with them. Is that the Eagles pit? And you see it's Tampa Bay. So the, you're right. That trade talk was there. The Eagles were definitely interested. But... And there's been a lot of debate about the picks that they did end up making. But the one thing, it does seem that Howie Roseman, the Eagles GM, was making a concerted effort to do was get faster. Carson Wentz is a quarterback with a big arm who seems to, like over the course of his relatively short career as an NFL starting quarterback, do his best and play his best football when he has a speed, at least one real speed receiver on the field. You go back to the Super Bowl year when Torrey Smith was out there and Nelson Aguilar was actually catching the ball. And Alshon Jeffrey did still seem to have a little bit left in the tank. That field was wide open and went and took clear advantage of it up until the injury. Since then, they've clearly been missing that element of speed. The next year they had Mike Wallace, who was a speed guy. He got hurt in game one. The year after that, we brought in Deshaun. He's hurt in week two. So this year, Howie Roseman tripled down on speed. You've got Deshaun Jackson coming back. You trade for Marquise Goodwin from San Francisco. 
in what was actually a fairly reasonable deal. All you had to do was swap six-round pick and bring him in. You draft Jalen Rieger in the first round, who 40 times had been questionable. His 40 time at the combine was in the 4-4 range. His 40 time at his pro day is reported in the 4-2 range. And there is a weight difference also involved in that. But in game speed, his top game speed clock was less than a half mile an hour difference than Deshaun Jackson. The kid is fast. It was in the 22 plus mile an hour range. The kid is fast. I I joked around with uh, Teron Davenport, uh, friend of the show, said, I'm looking at these Eagles wild receivers. And if they don't win the Super Bowl this year, and I'm not, you know, I'm joking. I'm not predicting the Super Bowl win. But, but I'm like, these Bulls is either going to win the Super Bowl or the Penn Relays next year. You know, they 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 got a squad. Like, if they if they don't win the Super Bowl, they could put a four-by-one team together. And it's going to be nice. Now, let's start, yeah. let's, let's start at the top of that draft. Because... You miss out on C.D. Lamb because that was that mm-hmm. was the name you heard. But I feel like with like I heard C.D. Lamb, you hear his name, you know, in the days, you know, weeks and days leading up to the draft. But to me, I never thought that was too realistic because I knew that they would have to trade up to get him. So it's like I've, I'm I'm never I I I. I I try to temper my feelings when it comes to picks that you would have to trade for. Exactly. You know, if I don't have if you don't have the pick in hand, you can't put your hopes on that. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm you the know, same way when it comes to that. Mm-hmm. So it's like okay, you know, because also like if there was a situation where he fell, like for some reason he fell, that would that would also that would also kind of put a you know it, it would i guess it, it would temper my feelings because then my next question would be why is he falling what is it that we don't you know what is it that we don't know like if there was some reason that cd lamb was there at 21 i would be excited but then in the back of my mind is like okay what happened why did he fall but nonetheless but there are players that fall for all for mm-hmm. a multitude of reasons randy moss fell mm-hmm. um which which one was it of the Cowboys O lineman? Was it Leo Collins? Oh uh, yeah, it was Leo. Oh no, well, Leo Collins didn't even get drafted. Remember, he had, I believe it was him who had the the he had the, you know like some big controversy coming around, and then he didn't mm-hmm. get drafted. Yeah, or or they or, took him in like the supplemental yeah, the supplemental draft. draft. Yep. But you know, uh, but I mean, uh, like like it happens. You know, Aaron Rodgers fell. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, um. Another good friend of the show, Barrett Brooks, who's been on. He always talks about he he was drafted that year. Warren Sapp fell. You know, you talk about mm-hmm. Randy, you know, Randy Moss falling, and and it's like a lot of times with these kids, there might be cause for concern, but once they get into camp, they come. You know, a lot of the, most of them come into camp with a chip on their shoulder, and that chip on their shoulder, you know, that chip they use that chip on their shoulder to dispel whatever 
concerns you may you may have had. So yeah, I, you know, C.D. Lamb falls to twenty one. I'm like, hey, well, why did he fall? But if he comes to camp and he starts balling, then you know what? I don't care why he fell. But nonetheless, he didn't. So when you get to where the Eagles picked at twenty one, two names that I had heard and two names that I, I was kind of prepared to bring in was Rieger and Jefferson. When I looked at the two, I was more of a Jefferson person because I thought Jefferson was a little bit bigger. You know, I I went with the size. I feel like that's the one, you know, you can't coach size. If I look at two pe- people, I see five, seven, I see six foot. Give me the six foot guy. So when Rieger and Jefferson were on the board. That is the conventional thinking. Yeah. When Rieger and Jefferson but was on the board, I wanted Jefferson. You know, plain and simple. But also what you're seeing in the NFL right now is, well, Jefferson is a guy who is best suited for the slot with his style of play, one. Mm-hmm. But also, recently in the NFL with, how can I say this, as lax, or I shouldn't say lax, as coverage has been forced to become, because the pass interference and defensive holding calls have become much stricter, mm-hmm. has liberated the speed guys, if you will, in the NFL. You don't have to be Steve Smith's tough to take the top off a of defense anymore. They can't get up and knock you on your butt at the, at the line of scrimmage. They can't engage beyond a couple yards and they really need that now and if they get that step on you and you get into some hand fighting that you're really likely to see that flag way more likely than you used to be and say like the the patriots versus colt heyday when ty law would get real physical with marvin harrison that's not that nfl anymore so Speed guys like a Tyreek Hill, per se, in Kansas City are able to truly affect the game in ways that they weren't able to 15 years ago. And a guy like Jalen Rager, he is... I guess, honestly, the best cop for him is Deshaun Jackson. He's that type of player. Now, if you could go back to the Deshaun Jackson draft, who was a second-round pick, and I told you you drafted Deshaun Jackson at pick 21 in the first round, would you be okay with that? Mm. Yeah, I I, I guess. I, I see where you're going with this, yeah. I spent I during the draft and, and pretty much all draft weekend. I was talking to you, and I was talking to Javon Offord, 
about the picks. I was a little salty about Rieger. But for me, I feel like I'm not that salty that I can't be proven wrong. Rieger is one of those situations where it's like, look, if he comes out and he proves that he's the truth, I don't mind being wrong. Okay? Quick quick timeout since he's going to be here for at least the next four years. Mm -hmm. Rieger. Not Rieger. Look, man, I like Rieger. Why, why can't is it, is it Mama named him Rager. All right, Rager. I've been calling him Rager all weekend. I've been calling him Rager since mock drafts. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll get his name. I, I, I guess you, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, if I can learn Halapuli Vati Vaitai and and uh, Jordan Maya, you know what? Never mind. All right, if the boy's name is Rager. I'll call him Rager. <laughs> Nonetheless, I'm I'm willing to be proven wrong on this guy. I'm willing to say, hey, you know what? I had my I I had my reservations, but dude's a beast. If he's a beast, uh-huh. you know, but. Nonetheless, I feel like. So I have, I'm just saying I haven't. Ca- I'm not saying yeah he's a beast. I'm mm-hmm. just saying he's a he's a wait and see. You can't count him out yet. Yeah, definitely. I'm, sometimes I mean there are times when there's a pick that you're really down on. There's a pick that you know there are picks that you're really high on, and then there are other picks where it's like you know what I have no problem waiting and seeing. And I feel like Rager, not Rieger, is one of those types of picks. Where it's like, you know, I, I had my reservations. There was a guy I had my eye on, and that guy was still there when the Eagles made their pick. But nonetheless, okay, it's not like I can't embrace him. I cannot embrace the pick. You know, It's not like that's the case. It's not like I can't just be like, hey, man, all right, let me see what this kid can do. Because like you said, now it just looks like, you know, it, it looks like the Eagles are trying to be you know, the next generation of the greatest show on turf. You remember when, uh, I'm sorry to, to, to have to bring up this man's name because I know what it does to you. Please don't hang up on me. But you remember when this team was taking form under uh, Mr. Kelly. And they weren't calling it the Legion of Boom like in uh, Seattle, but they were calling it the Legion of Zoom. This is where I feel like they're going. That's that's where they're going back to. But in the end, the questions that around the questions that came up after the Rager pick, <laughs> you, know, that, you know, that was one thing. The first night, you uh-huh. know, is like, hey. Do you want to pick Rager over Jefferson? That that was one thing. The next night, the next night, all of a sudden, Rager's man of the year. Because with their second round pick, the Philadelphia Eagles selected Jalen Hurts. Jalen Hurts. 
the quarterback from Oklahoma, formerly Alabama. In a bubble, if you just tell me Jalen Hurts, you don't tell me what team, Mm -hmm. what roster, anything. You tell me Jalen Hurts was drafted 53 overall, I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. In a bubble. In a bubble, if you tell me the Eagles took a backup quarterback in this draft, you don't tell me anything else. You tell me they took a backup quarterback in this draft. I'm okay with that, too. But when you combine the two and tell me that the Eagles, who just recently gave their quarterback over $100 million guaranteed, 130 total, I believe it is, and you pretty much expect them to play out that whole, that whole contract, it's it's a little baffling, at least, to see that they took when there were still offensive weapons around. You could have took another wide receiver. Denzel Mims was still on the board. Mm-hmm. You could have took an edge rusher. You could have taken a linebacker around earlier than you did. When we had Jeff Mosher on the show a few weeks ago, Eagles beat, beat reporter and many other things, that he was, we were talking about linebackers who were saying maybe the fourth round at one of those picks mm-hmm. that they had at that point. Instead, they took one in the third round. They could have taken one in the second round and gotten one who wasn't thought of to be a decent player, but still more of a project developmental type guy. You expect him to be a starter in maybe two, three years, mm-hmm. not day one. You could have got it took a guy who was ready to play in day day one, you know? But instead you invested that asset into I don't want to say he's not a good backup quarterback mm-hmm. or a valuable piece to have because the Eagles have proven to be a team that one way or another, makes use of their backup quarterback. Mm-hmm. But I don't. If okay, I'll say it this way: if it were me, I would have taken a different player. You texted me during the draft, right after they took that pick, and I said, "If it were me, I'd have taken Mills." Mm-hmm. He was on the board. You took another receiver later, and then after that, you traded for another receiver, a speed guy in Marquise Goodwin, who, if healthy, can be an asset, but he hasn't been healthy since 2017. So that is a little bit of a risk there as well. So you could have just used that asset on Denzel Mills and maybe possibly looked at a third-round backup quarterback. It's possible Jalen Hurts would have still been there in the third round. So, I don't dislike Jalen Hurts as a player. I think he was, I don't think he was overdrafted. I just think that the team that drafted him was not the team that should have drafted him. And I don't mean that from the standpoint of his development. I mean that from the standpoint of what the team needed at the time. 
and how they could have best used that pick to better their team over the next three to five years. In the third round, Eagles took uh, Davion Taylor, linebacker Mm -hmm. from Colorado. Colorado. And one thing a lot of people said about that pick was had they taken Taylor in the second round and Hurts in the third round, people wouldn't be as concerned or wouldn't have the same reservations. Do you agree with that notion? Absolutely. But because of where each player was drafted, the perception is going to be that you can't, and this this is fair, that in the second round, considering the players that were remaining on the board, the Eagles could have done something that would have better progressed their team in the short term for sure. Because best case scenario for Jalen Hurts over the next three, four years even, or best case scenario for the Eagles, is that Carson Wentz stays healthy and plays up to and beyond the contract they gave him and Jalen Hurts never has to see the field beyond a couple plays here and there a la Taysom Hill. Mm-hmm. Do you buy that comparison, that, though? Do you buy that, that Taysom Hill comparison, wanting him, you know, thinking that in in the interim where we see if Jalen Hurts will become the starting quarterback in Philly, which hopefully is a long time from now, but in the interim, that they can use him in a way that's similar to what the Saints do with Taysom Hill. Do you buy that? To an extent, I believe Jalen Hurts is every bit as good an athlete as Taysom Hill. He's used to running, carrying the football, taking some contact. He's a high IQ football player who has throughout his career displayed the fact that despite him believing in his own ability as a starting quarterback, he's willing to do whatever it needs to do to help the team win. And he's proven that he is a good teammate. Like I go back to, the championship game where he was struggling in the first half and in the second half he was benched and Tua was put in, the true freshman. Mm -hmm. And Tua comes in, lights a spark, Alabama wins. The first player off the bench running to congratulate Tua when they they won the game was Jalen Hurts. He was truly excited that the team won a championship. Guys like that I can work with. Mm-hmm. Like he's like so, it's it's not like it's not like Jalen Hurts is a bad kid or he comes in with even the remote sign of trouble or baggage. It's just the type No, the of play- kid's a winner. The kid's a winner. And it's like it's just the type of player that he is and that the type being a, a quarterback when you have a quarterback 
and I, when they made this pick, it's like, I, I got, I got to be real with you, man. Sometimes your words haunt me. You know, in, in a couple of years, that you, in, in, in a couple of years that you and I have been doing podcasts and talking sports together, there are certain things that you say that haunt me, and that I that when those situations come up and you are not around, I hear your voice. One of the things that one of the things that you have said countless times when we talk about football. It's how teams, how organizations choose to build their team once they've given their quarterback his money. And we talk at length about organizations building their team around their quarterback once he's gotten the bag. Carson Wentz has mm-hmm. gotten that bag. So if you... So unfortunate. So once you've given your quarterback that bag, there aren't too many opportunities to bring in big name free agents. There's, you know, you have oh, no. you have a pie, and you've given the biggest slice to your quarterback. And quite frankly, if your quarterback's legit, then he deserves it. Like this isn't about Carson Wentz being overpaid, but the fact of the matter is, now that he's got his bag, you got to figure out a way to build around him. And once he has the bag, if you're going to build around him, it has to be with ingredients you grew yourself. Now, I have always said, on when I've always said, whether it be on this podcast or one or or something else or anything else that we've been on. I go into drafts with the expectation that your first round pick and your second round pick should be players that you expect to play week one. I want to see them on the field. In a perfect world, your first round and your second round pick are starting week one. That's a perfect world. I understand that's not always going to be the case. So, Best case scenario, you get two starters. Worst case scenario, you get somebody who can, you get heavy contributors. A good rotational player. A good rotational player. Somebody that you know will be on the field at big moments. Can contribute. Be productive. Yes. So I don't know if, I don't know if Jalen Rager, sorry. I don't know if Rager is going to be a starting wide receiver week one. But I think he is a good. I believe by midseason. By midseason, week one with this weird offseason, I think it's a stretch. But I think by midseason, he should be a productive, if not good, receiver. Uh, that is realistic. I well, but what I will say this: I think Rager is good. Is a good enough player. He should be seeing playing time. Rager's not mm-hmm. going to be on the in you know barring injury. Rager's not going to be inactive week one. Maybe he's catching punts. Maybe he's returning kickoffs. Maybe you know he's got a special teams job. He's there's some packages for him. And the, these are the things which he has shown himself more than capable of doing. Exactly. He, he's not a guy who can just run a go route. Mm-hmm. 
the only knock on Rager is that he's not big. Yes. 5'11". But, like, as I would... But as I went into earlier in today's NFL, that's not as much of a problem as it used to be. Mm-hmm. It still is, of course, ideal to have a Randy Moss or Calvin Johnson mm-hmm. who can go up over a top of everybody and as and run by them. But there aren't too many guys like that. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and I guess the, po- the and point- if you give yeah. me the option. If you give me the option, just real quick, if you give me the option of which type of guy I would want with Carson Wentz, I want the guy who can run away from people rather than the guy who can who can who is known to go up and get it. Mm-hmm. Because Carson Wentz has shown himself to prefer the guy who can get separation and run away from mm-hmm. people rather than the guy who likes jump ball 50-50 situation. Exactly, exactly. But the po- I guess the point I'm making is, it is a fair and safe expectation that week one, Jalen Rager is a contributor. Jalen Rager should be on, should be on the field in some capacity at some point week one. Jalen Hurts. He should Jaylen. be on the field. He, yeah. Week one, Jalen Hurts. Jalen Rager, not Jalen Hurts. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. Too many Jalens on the Eagles right now. Jalen Rager should see minimum 35-40% of the offensive snaps in week one because you assume you're going to see some 12 personnel, Mm -hmm. two tight ends where you might have two different wide receivers Mm -hmm. on the field. Exactly. So he's not going to be on every snap guy at this point in his career. No. But I think in week one, 35-40% of the offensive snaps is fair. You're not gonna, if he yeah. really shows himself well in whatever sort of training camp preseason you get, you might see sixty percent of the offensive snaps in week one. I don't believe you. Sh- there, there. You shouldn't be saying. You shouldn't be asking. Where's Jalen Rager week one? I don't believe that that is the case. I'm confident okay. that's I'll, not going to be the case. I'll, I'll put it this way: going in the last season when the Eagles had. In theory, Deshaun Jackson, Nelson Aguilar, and Alshon, a healthy Alshon Jeffrey, all of them healthy. You expected to see to see Alshon and Deshaun a lot. Mm-hmm. And when the formation and play calling called for Aguilar in that third role, you're not going to see Aguilar on the field all the time, but you're going to see him out there. Mm-hmm. Expect Jalen Rager to get the majority of the snaps you would have expected Aguilar, Aguilar to get yeah. that last year. Fair enough. The Fair majority enough. of them, if not all of them, but the majority of. Them. If that is if that is the case, I am satisfied. If that is the case, I am satisfied. The problem is your second round pick is a completely different situation, and that is yeah, a problem. Second round pick is a guy who, in best case scenario, doesn't see more than three snaps a game. That, and that's best case scenario where Wentz is healthy, so you don't ever have your backup quarterback under center except for a couple Taysom Hill like plays. Mm-hmm. And he's actually willing to accept a role like that and can excel at it. That's best case scenario right now. This year, 
for, for Jalen Hurts. And for me, and that's something that I have a problem with, because when you have a you're, you're a team where it's like you're you're a middle of the road team oh. like the Eagles. Yes, you won your division. Yes, you got to the playoffs, but you were nine and seven. You needed you you needed uh, an unreal down the stretch performance. You okay? You go in had your receiving core been a hundred percent last year? Do you think the Eagles would have still been nine and seven? No. No. I think they. So do you think they're? So do you think they're truly? a middle-of-the-road team, or do you think they just had some bad luck with it? And they made the playoffs I think three they of had, the last three years. I think they, they won a Super Bowl in in the last three years. When and I they call, won the division two of the last three years. When I called them a middle-of-the-road team, that was their record. That's what they were. Now, overall, when you think about, when you look at them on paper, 100% healthy, yeah, I, I understand that changes things. But nonetheless, they, did, they had a... a bunch of injuries to end the season. They finished the season nine and seven. I don't think there was any, you can take, you can say what you want about the health of this team, but they weren't good enough to stand pat. They needed to make some adjustments. They needed to try and get Carson want some more weapons. Okay. So as you say mm-hmm. that now that the draft and all the trades and everything else are over, do you think Howie Roseman did enough to bring in more weapons? When you include John Hightower from Boise State, you include the Marquise Goodwin trade with San Francisco, you include Jalen Rager in the first round, and all of the speed that comes with all of those guys. Do you think, and I'll and I'll and I'll phrase it this way: as simple as an adjustment as flipping the second and third round picks, same guys, just flip the order they were drafted in. How happy would you be with this draft? Or I'll put it, or with this off season? Because let's look at the off season as a totality. I think the off because that's how that's how. Because that's how Howie has to look at it. Yeah, he Howie look, can't just yeah. look at the draft in a bubble. No, he has to look at the whole team, the whole offseason, all the moves in contact. You look so at, you bring in Slay, you bring in Hargrave, mm-hmm. you bring in Nickel, mm-hmm. Roby, Coleman. Mm-hmm. You you do these things. You lose a couple pieces at linebacker and Nigel Bradham and Kalu Bruger Hill. So Malcolm Jenkins. You there. You lose Malcolm Jenkins. You move Jalen Mills to safety, which, at least in my opinion, is sh- should be Jalen Mills' best NFL position. But that's not the discussion we're having for for you. And looking at the Eagles' offseason in totality, a simple tweak as far as just flopping the order of rounds two and three. I would, how would you feel about the Howie in the offseason? Honestly, I, well, I will, I will put it to you like this. When the draft was over, I was a lot less frustrated than I was when it started. Once you saw the entire body of work and what Howie Roseman did that entire weekend, when you look at the totality of that weekend, which means mm-hmm. what he did in rounds three through seven, 
the trades that he made. The Rager pick uh, bothered me. The Hurts pick pissed me off. But I will say my anger going into my my anger going into night three, into day three of the draft. By the end of day three, I was like, okay, you know what? Let's see what you can do. Rager bothered me because there was somebody else that I wanted and he was on the board. But it was one of those situations where it's like, you know what? Jefferson? Yeah. But okay. I'm, I'm not going to split hairs over that. That's that's something I can easily get over. I can build a bridge, get over that. So if, uh, if Rager turns out to be a productive player, that pick doesn't bother you. Yeah. That'll be one of those. Wait, that'll be the, that'll be one of those things where it's like Rager, like say, like like hypothetically speaking, Rager turns out to be a beast. Rager turns out to be a complete beast. That's one of those things where you can gladly joke me down the line, but like, hey man, Rager had twelve catches for one hundred and fifteen yards. Remember when you wanted Jefferson? You know, and those are those jokes I'll gladly take. I'll be the butt of that joke. And, you know, I'm not telling you to write a letter home to your mother celebrating the the Rager pick. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just saying that's a pick I, at this point, can at least understand. Yeah. I'm not Especially even Especially now that I, in retrospect, I can look at the whole picture. Mm-hmm. As you mm-hmm. said, I'm with you. At the moment, and during round two, when Howie took a quarterback, regardless of who it was at quarterback, Mm -hmm. when he took a quarterback, I was confused to say the least. Mm -hmm. But looking at the entire picture now, I'm way more comfortable with it. No, no, I, I, I I am more, I am more along the lines of what you were saying right now. That, that is, that is where I felt. Because to me, there were a lot of different, there were a lot of different explanations people gave as to picking hurts at that point. A lot of people were talking about Carson Wentz's injury history. And they were saying what, you know, you have to take into account his injury history and the fact that he has struggled. He has struggled with injuries down the line in the season. But for me, my argument to that was the last game that the Eagles played you wouldn't be able to pick their four wide receivers out of a lineup. The last game that Carson Wentz started, he started with four wide receivers. You, 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 whose names you don't know. So yes, you know what? I, I completely understand that you need to take into account your quarterback's health. But there are also other needs on this team. Now, like you say, when you look at the totality of that weekend, when you look at the Eagles draft weekend, when you're talking about their draft picks as well as the trade that Howie Roseman made, you know what you feel a little you feel a lot better. All right, the the the, the Hertz pick, uh, I don't necessarily like it. But when you see what was done in the entirety of that weekend, when you look at the whole picture now, all right, you know, I, I can't. this doesn't have to be a thing for me. 
This doesn't have to be what holds me up. I'm, I don't have to be held up by this. I don't have to be bothered by this. I don't necessarily like it, but hey, man, you know what? Let's see what happens. That's where I am with this. I'm, I'm now fully, I can, I can definitely wait and see as far as this is concerned. We've been going, ooh, probably a good little bit now. Mm-hmm. I think we probably we probably need to take a break soon, don't we? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, we're de- we're definitely at the point of a break. Well, look, you know, bottom bottom line is, you know, I I am glad that, you know, I am glad that here we are in a position that we actually have some sports to talk about. I'm that I'm glad for that. I'm I'm thankful for that because. Golly, it, it, it's, it's been a rough two months. It has been. It has definitely been a rough two months. So how about this, man? Let's take a real quick break. And then when we come back on the other side of the break, uh, I know you wanted to talk about this whole Last Dance movie. I know you want to talk about that because that's your wheelhouse. They're talking about Mike here. So let's take a break. <laughs> so let's take a break. And we'll, on the other side, we'll talk We'll talk a little Michael Jordan. We'll talk a little Last Dance, all right? All right. All right, let's do that, right? We'll be right back, right here on Offense, Defense, and Discord. You feel on this podcast? To hear this and more, go to soundcloud.com slash B-I-T-W sports or on iTunes or Apple Podcasts and search Best in the World Sports. James Lewis. I've never lived in a city like Phoenix where the downtown is not the center of the city. The, what's popping is out in Scottsdale. <laughs> That's where everything's popping. That's where all the five-star That's restaurants the clubs are. are in Scottsdale. The best clubs in towns are in Scottsdale. The best mm. spas are in Scottsdale. If anything, they need to build the arena in Scottsdale and move everything from downtown out to Scottsdale. Yeah, they build in the then white castles a, Then you have an elite in franchise. Scottsdale. Next to them, next to them carved houses in Camelback Mountain. That's where everything is popping to me from what I've white seen castles in my two years. It's uh, coming to yeah. Scottsdale. I will be there. Rampage, the first lieutenant of the Universal Flipmo squad. Next to, the, next to the spot, it's like $800 an hour. It don't matter. It <laughs> don't matter. I'm up, I'm up in that right. piece. You are listening to the Lance J Radio Network. The following is a production of the Lance J Radio Network and Best in the World Sports, a division of Definitive Visions Multimedia. The opinions and views expressed are certainly those of the host and do not represent the views of Lance J Radio Network or NBC Sports Radio. All right, and we are back on Offense, Defense, and Discourse. My name is Brown. On the phone with me, deep in quarantine, is my man Jonesy, a.k.a. Mike Jones. What's good with you, brother? Oh, man, I got a smile on my face right now. I, I, I bet you do. I bet you do because... We have now watched four episodes, four installments mm. of the ten-part series, The Last Dance. I've watched oh. eight, if you count the fact that I watched every episode twice. <laughs> now I know. Look, I understand. You and your wheelhouse. Mike was your guy. You were a Mike fan. Oh man, I, I'm in my bag right now because mm-hmm. everybody's starting to actually look at the tape. And hear the stories and realize the the level of intensity, commitment, passion, mm. dedication to winning and solely winning. Mm-hmm. Like 
everybody thinks about Mike and the business and all and the team owning a owning a team and owning the shoe brand and all that stuff. All of those things were side effects of his dedication to winning. Yes, he was definitely a win first guy. How do I win first? Who puts me in the best position to win? I need winners. I'm all about winners. Mm-hmm. And it, it it has definitely been entertaining. You know, I broke and, out, I broke out my Jordan 5s and put them on for uh for the first night. And I wanted to get comfortable for the second night, so I didn't you know, I didn't, I didn't have any shoes on at all, but I enjoyed it. I have I enjoyed the the first two weeks. I, I've definitely enjoyed and, and that there was a point that and you know me, hey, when I start talking basketball, I am somewhat of a purist when mm-hmm. it comes to basketball and how basketball should be played. And there was a point brought up Sunday night of episodes three and four. I'm not sure which episode it was specifically, mm-hmm. but the point was brought up that Mike was a, about how great of an individual player Mike was. Mm-hmm. And Mike himself talked about how he was not a Phil Jackson fan. Mm-hmm. when they brought in Phil Jackson because Phil was taking the ball out of his hands, whereas Doug Collins used to put the ball in, in his hands. Mm-hmm. But Mike was willing to accept it because he was dedicated to winning and he was a smart enough player to realize mm-hmm. this is what helps me win. And in game, in the moment, like, in the finals, that first championship game five, the the final game against the Lakers, it's a back and forth, neck and neck game. Phil is telling Mike, look for your teammate, penetrating dish. Mm-hmm. John Paxson is open. John Paxson ended that game with what, 18 points or something like that? Because Mike trusted his teammate. And between Phil teaching Mike, Mike accept, being willing to accept it, and then it, in accepting it, he was able to actually see his teammate validate what the coach was saying and, in essence, validate him trusting them in the moment to give them the opportunity he was able to win championships. Now, a lot of people will, off topic, a lot of people will knock LeBron for, quote-unquote, making the right play and kicking the ball out to his open teammate. Nah, that's not, never knock LeBron for that. Mm-hmm. That, that, was some, that was the part when Mike added that to his game. That that's what made him a champion. Over the top. That's where he started winning Larry championships. Bird or, exactly. It's like, now, if you want to get into if you want to get into X's and O's, there are reasons I'll say LeBron is the second best player I've ever seen, which I don't think is knocking LeBron. Mm-hmm. That's a strong statement to say he's the second best That's player I've time. ever seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Mike is number one. We're not at this point of this conversation. That's not what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. But that was what stood out to me more than anything at this point. Couple. That I think a lot of today's players could 
could stand to learn. Mm -hmm. As great as they are individually scoring and getting buckets, if they realize that they could use all that extra attention they get from the defense because of their talent to make their teammates better and get their teammates easier, better opportunities, thus making them a better team, mm-hmm. it would absolutely change the way basketball looks, is played, and it would be a much better game. You kind of see some of these guys. You you kind of see the evolution. You kind of see the evolution of Michael Jordan's mindset in that episode when he's talking mm-hmm. about when he's talking about Phil Jackson and Tex Winter coming in installing the triangle offense. Mike says it himself. He's not trying to run plays in which Bill Cartwright is taking shots. You know, he said, he said that, and that's earlier in the season. Like, what Bill's going to take the shot? Like, you know, get the f out of here. You know, I'm, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to hear that. But then, when you get to the finals, you're in the finals, and you're on the, uh, and they're on the sidelines, and they're like, "Who's open? Pax is open. Okay, if they're collapsing yeah. on me, and Pax is open, let me get Pax the ball." So it's like, like. Yeah, but- and just to, I don't. I'm gonna let you finish. I just wanted to throw this out to you real quick before anybody thinks we're not. I'm not in my wheelhouse right now, JB. Uh-huh. I want you to do something. What's up, man? I don't. I can tell you, but I don't want to tell you. I want you to do something. I want you. You have James Lewis's tech. Lewis's phone number works with us. Does Lance J Radio show hosts mm-hmm. with Rampage. I believe you still have his number. If you don't, I'll give it to you. Okay, what's up with you? But I want, I want you to text him, and I want you to ask him in what was it, August, September of nineteen ninety-five. Mm-hmm. Jordan's back, and then they bring in Dennis Rodman. This is. Right before the start of championship number four, the beginning of the second three peak. Okay. Ask him what I predicted the Bulls' record would be. Okay. Well, I I don't have his number. Text me. I'll 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 take I'll take care of that. I'm gonna send you his number. All right. But don't don't say anything else in the text. Other than that, what did I tell ask okay. him? What did I tell him the Bulls' record would be? All right, you send me that. And, you send me that number. I'll 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 take care of that. Yeah, I'm gonna send you that r- number right now. And for anybody listening, I am going to tell you what. I, now that we've done that, you can so you can verify it. He's going to tell you that I said their record would be seventy-two and ten. Mm. Now I it's funny. I and I stuck and I stuck to that number all year because I looked at their schedule, I mm-hmm. looked at the matchups. I said 72 and 10. And this is in 1995. I'm young. Mm-hmm. But no. this was my wheelhouse. I studied that team. Well, here's what I liked about the Rodman episode. 
and I really did enjoy it. I, I enjoyed the Robin episode. I probably I probably liked it more than I liked the Scotty. And I liked the Scotty episode as well. But what I liked about Rodman was it just showed that, you know, as like for the last twenty something years, you know, Rodman his his public persona, his image has been this this wild card, this crazy guy. But when it comes down to it, Rodman was a student of the game, and that's why he and Jordan clicked. Even when Rodman was like, "Look, man, I gotta clear my head. I need a vacation," and Jordan was like, "Like, like what?" But the fact of the matter oh, is, you, you, are. you know, George, Rodman comes back from this vacation, and he's locked in. Oh, you're absolutely right. Anybody who understood Dennis Rodman back then, like you, like you knew the stories and the wild man part and all that part, but you also, you also knew that he was a hard-working, do-anything-for-my-teammates basketball genius. Like, people think it was just the rebounding and defense. When Rodman was in Detroit, he averaged 15 a game. Mm -hmm. You heard him say he averaged 27 or so in college. Mm -hmm. Rodman, his free throw percentage was low. But if you look at his fourth quarter free throw percentage with the Bulls, he made them when he needed to. Mm -hmm. Offense was just something he opted not to care about. He says it like, I figured out what I was good at, what I was great at excuse me, which was defense and rebounding, and that was what he focused on. And on a Bulls team specifically where you had a Tiffin and a, and a Jordan and a coach and a Rod Harper and shooters like Kerr and those type of guys, what you don't need is Rodman to take 20 shots again. And he was, and he was happy to play his role because, like Mike, his focus was winning. And I think that, and, and to me, that's that you saw why that was what, like, like my, what you're seeing so far in two weeks of this program is if you was about winning, Mike was about you. If you were about doing what mm-hmm. it took to win, Mike was about you. So when it came down to Dennis Rodman, and the thing was, you saw how things had ended in Detroit, and you saw how things had ended in San Antonio. And it was like the thing, of, like what you think about San Antonio. One, this was San Antonio pre-pop. Pop hadn't taken over yet. It was still Bob Hill. And I think maybe things would have been different in San Antonio had Pop been there. But, it was, you know, that wasn't the case. So mm-hmm. it was San Antonio saying, hey, we're trying to, you know, we need to get Dennis Rodman to fit into our culture. Uh, Where, yeah, that's, that was absolutely the case. Mm-hmm. But he gets... Whereas- where Phil Jackson was like character himself. He was yeah, Phil was a unique character himself. So he's going to respond to a, another unique character differently than most coaches would. Mm-hmm. And he and and for and here's it's like Jordan was the alpha male. Jordan was the alpha male in that group 
Scotty fell in line, and Scotty was molded into Jordan's image. Whereas, like, look, Jordan was all about winning. Scotty was right there next to Jordan, so that means Scotty was all about winning. You bring in, you bring in Dennis Rodman, and here's the thing: it's like this is what they had in common. Rodman was all about winning. Mm-hmm. When that's the culture. That was the culture when it was Michael Jordan. When it was Mike on Michael Jordan's Bulls, the culture was winning. Whereas, I, you know, I'm not necessarily sure but what the culture was for- in San Antonio, but for the Bulls, the culture was winning. When you start with that, when your foundation is, hey, we are here to win. But then, I will say that all falls in line. with Rod, with with Rodman specifically, in addition to it being about winning, and it was solely about winning on the court. Rodman, as a person, seemed to be the type where he needed to feel like from at least the head coach or someone in leadership, they accepted him as him. They weren't going to try to force a square peg into a round hole, if you know what I mean. And I like, and honestly, Rodman, I mean, Rodman was not the personality type who was going to respond to being told how to live his life or how to carry himself. If you tried that with Rodman, you were going to lose him quickly. Yeah. And Phil Jackson was the type who could tell, who would look at Rodman and say, as long as you're with us and helping us win, be you. Yeah, and I think, and, and to an extent, Jordan was the exact same way. And if Jordan was the exact same way, Pippen, you, you knew whatever way Jordan was, Pippen was going to be. So it's like, yeah, I agree was, so Jordan, if Jordan's like, look, man, you wear, put your hair wherever you want. You get me 15 like rebounds a game, you know, we good. But, but that's a point I can't really stress enough to any of our younger listeners who may happen to be out there. Because in the late 80s, early 90s, it was not like 2020 where we are from children encouraged to express ourselves and be who you are and be yourself and display your personality. In the late 80s and early 90s, it's cut your hair, wear a shirt and tie, suit to work, you know, pull your pants up and fall in line. This was before Allen Iverson changed that culture in the Mm. NBA. So for Rodman to be Rodman, mm-hmm. that was a shock to most people. When Iverson, most came, people's sensibilities. When Iverson came into the league, and when when he first when he first, it was more like between his second and third year was really when you know the cornrows and the tattoos came in. Rodman, mm-hmm. Rodman got a whole bunch of tattoos. Rodman was considered a freak. Iverson was cool. Yeah. When Rodman came in with all those tattoos, they thought he was a freak. An absolute a freak and a crazy man. Iverson did it. It it was was cool. Yeah, it was it was a culture shot. Iverson made all that cool. But none but nonetheless, I I have thoroughly enjoyed it. And I have enjoyed it even from my you know from my perspective, where I was somebody who 
avidly cheered against Michael Jordan for years. Probably from, in fact, I'll put it to you this way. I probably cheered against Jordan for five of those six championships. I, I was somebody where, like, and I was explaining this, I was explaining my personal sports hate. And you know you and I get you and I get into it about sports hate all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, and it a lot of it comes back to what they do to what these teams do to my my teams. All right, I always hated the Lakers. Why did I hate the Lakers? Because they always beat the Sixers. Why did I hate the Boston Celtics? One, because Larry Bird fought uh, Mike. Excuse me, Larry Bird fought Dr. J, and two, the Celtics would beat the Sixers before they would even get a chance to play the Lakers. I like the Detroit Pistons. I like the Detroit Pistons. Why did I like the Detroit Pistons? Because they beat Larry Bird and the Celtics. And see, I was always the opposite. I did not like the Pistons at all. Mm-hmm. Now I will tell you this: I, I like, I like the Sixers, and I liked my, watching the Michael Jordan's Bulls play. I wasn't a Bulls fan, but I from early on, I recognized what I was watching, and I mm-hmm. loved watching them play. Mm-hmm. I liked I liked the, the Pistons up until Barkley and Lambeer got into that big fight. Once that happened, I'm now, I've checked out on I've checked out on the Pistons. I wanted to see the Pistons lose. Because Barkley and Lambert, Barkley and Lambert got into that big fight. Hold hold on one second. Barkley and Lambert get into Mm -hmm. that big fight, and then the Pistons then go on to win the championship that year. So by the end of that season, I am completely out on the Detroit Pistons. I now hate the Pistons. I hate the Pistons. So when the Bulls come back that next year, that next year was when the Bulls beat the Pistons. I'm on. You know, I'm in on the Bulls. But what also happened was the Bulls had now beaten the Sixers two years in a row in the playoffs. So after the Bulls beat the Pistons, which I was glad about, and I was glad that they beat the Lakers because the Lakers used to always beat the Sixers. Now I'm out on the Bulls. Now I'm out. On, I'm done with the Bulls. I'm I'm now rooting against the Bulls. And at this point, you know, it, it didn't matter because Jordan was at this point. Jordan was full Jordan at that point. Let's see. I, I'm 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 a different fan type of fan than that. If I like you, I like. You. And if I feel like me liking you will be a problem with you, with me liking my main team, I'll never like you. Which is one of the reasons why I never liked the Pistons, as, as specifically, excuse me, as like a young kid playing basketball in school at that time and playing guard. I'm not the biggest guy. When the Pistons were winning, it was, to me, an ugly brand of basketball that didn't epitomize skill. It was, this guy is more skilled than us. He's better than us. We're just going to beat him up because the refs will allow it. But... So it was a, for me, it, it was almost a 
I don't know how to express it, but it was a, I enjoyed seeing the skill team overcoming the physical team. Once they had enough talent to play as a team, once it wasn't the one man show and they actually were out there playing good team basketball, I was glad to see that the team playing good team ball beat the team that was just out there beating people up. Well, I will tell I will tell you this. I I personally I am a fan of that physical basketball, but what what made me check out on the Pistons in particular was I thought the Pistons were bullies. And I thought they were old school bullies. Whereas, you know, you and I, are, we're, we're, we're close in age. So, you know, when we were kids. Let's see that. Well, well hold, hold on. Let me, let, let me finish. I'm listening. Point. I'm listening. No, I'm when, listening. When 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 we were kids, you know, we come from that era where, you know, you're told if you're if you're being bullied, what do you do to a bully? Hit him in the mouth. You hit a bully in the mouth. And what is a bully gonna do? Bully's gonna back down. And I felt like that was that was the Pistons. The Pistons were the bad boys. This they they played this tough physical game game of basketball and they used to play this tough physical game of basketball but they used to kind of try and play out the bulls like the bulls were soft like they used to talk about the bulls like the bulls were soft like they you know they were these prima donnas who did nothing but whine but the problem that i had with the pistons were if you try to match what i didn't like about the pistons were if you try to match the pistons physicality they were whiners like the Bulls were whiners. Like, you sit here and, you, like, Pistons fans, diehard Pistons fans, true Pistons fans will sit here and will they will talk to you and they will say Michael Jordan was a whiner, Scottie Pippen was a whiner, Horace Grant was a whiner. But know what, also, know what Pistons fans will also do? Complain about Carl Malone. Mm-hmm. That's and, and to me that that was the problem. That was you know that's when I began to check out on when I began to check out on the Pistons because the Pistons were all the the Pistons were all about the bad boys and that physical basketball when it was the Pistons playing it. Charles Barkley punched Lambert in his face and all of a sudden now it's a problem. Charles Barkley's a thug. You look at what Char- you look at what the Pistons were doing for years in the late eighties, and it was you know you talk to a Pistons fan, it was great. It was hard nose, blue collar, you know, lunch pail. See, as you say, but as you say that, that becomes my question because you're saying at one point you were a Pistons fan, but that was always there in love. Yeah, yeah. What I'm what I'm saying is it was like, which is why to me I was never a fan. Like to me, like I consider well, one. I mean, I'm I'm being real. You know, we're talking the late '80s. So now we're talking me being eleven, twelve, thirteen years old. So I had an affinity for whoever was hot at the time. 
I always love my Sixers. Always love my Eagles. Always love. Well, you know, I, I try to love the Phillies, but the Phillies were really, really bad at that point. But no, but that's that's beside the point. But you know, the hot team at the moment always caught my eye. That was just how it was. You know, I'm a diehard fan of my home team. You know, my home team sports. But the the hot team, you know, the hot team at the moment always caught my eye. But for me, it was also about, you know, the teams that I hated. Always hated the Lakers. Always hated the Celtics. Like Magic Johnson, respected Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, but still, they were Lakers, and the Lakers beat the Sixers, so I hated them. Always hated Larry Bird. Always hated the Boston Celtics. So how did I become a Piston? How did I become start to like the Pistons? Easy. Pistons beat Larry Bird and the Celtics. So I was like, okay, you know, the the friend of my the friend of my enemy is my friend until he becomes my enemy. That's what it was. So it was like, yeah, how do I end up liking the Pistons? Pistons beat Larry Bird. I hated Larry Bird ever since he fought uh, Dr. J. So I'm sitting here watching basketball and I'm watching Larry Bird fight the Pistons every week. So I'm sitting over there like, okay, I like the Pistons now. I don't know who this guy, I don't know who this Bill Lambeer guy is, but I know he's fighting Larry Bird right now, so I know I like this Bill Lambeer. I don't know who this Isaiah Thomas guy is, but he just said what a whole bunch of people in the barbershop said, and that's Larry Bird wouldn't be a, Larry Bird's a star because he's white. You know, yeah, that wasn't true though. Larry was, Bird was just better than a lot of people. It, yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't necessarily true, but it's not. But it's like you grow up in Philly. You getting your, You know, I used to get my hair cut at Callis and Callis oh, on saying, Staten Avenue. Trust me, I understand. Yeah, you know what? As a, people tried to act like they were appalled by what Isaiah Thomas said. And all, and like, if you were a kid growing up in Philly, that's not what Isaiah Thomas said about Larry Bird. Isn't something that it's something that you heard a bunch of times. I heard that in Germantown all the time. You go, you go to any barbershop in Uptown. They were t that's what they were saying that they love Larry Bird because he's white. But beside, but but. Nonetheless, it was like, look, man, I, I like the Pistons because they beat the Celtics, but then the Pistons got into a fight with Charles Barkley. I'm sitting there and I'm looking at, and it's like you knew that you knew that the Sixers had signed Rick Mahorn, and now Isaiah Thomas is swinging on Rick Mahorn. I'm like, oh, hold, hold up, that used to be a teammate, and now you swinging on him. Oh, Isaiah Thomas is a sucker. Oh, oh, Larry, you know, Bill Lambeer was this big, tough enforcer. But you just got punched in the face by 6'6 Charles Barkley? Oh yeah, Bill Lambert is a punk. You know, that's how you know that's how I felt. So it was like, you know, I was salty because here, you know, what I remember was I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, after that fight, that's that was 1990. That was 1990. Mm -hmm. If I remember right, I believe the Sixers beat the Cavs in the first round and I believe they lost to the Bulls in six in the second round and all I could think about was I wanted I wanted to see the Sixers and the Pistons play in the Eastern Conference Finals like I need to see seven games of this 
but they lost, but they lost to the Bulls. So I was a little upset, but I was still like, all right, you know what? Okay, you, I'm looking at Michael Jordan and the Bulls, and I'm like, yeah, you beat us, but y'all better go out and beat the Pistons. And I feel like my view of Michael Jordan probably would have been different if the Bulls beat us in the second round of the playoffs that year, then went on and lost to the Pistons. Wait, you know what? Hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I take that back because the Bulls did lose to the Pistons that year. Mm-hmm. I take that back. I take that. I, I take that back. No, you know, okay, I didn't feel that way. I didn't feel that way. I just hated it. Okay, the thing the was, I, I take that back. I'm wrong because the Bulls did lose to the Pistons that year, but still, that made me hate the Pistons more because the Pistons. You know, yeah, in fact, yeah. All right, let me let me tell. Yeah, it made me hate the Pistons more because the Pistons. Because not only did the Pistons get into that fight with the Sixers that year, the Pistons then went on to win the World Championship. So yeah, I was full. Yeah, I was fully in Pistons hate at that point. I just wanted anyone to beat them. Okay, so and I get that, but for me, mm-hmm. it was just that piston style of basketball. Yeah, no, I feel you. I I never enjoyed because it was never about being the best at basketball. Mm-hmm. At least about, in my opinion. So, did you feel the same way about those nineties? So, those nineties Patrick Ewing uh, Knicks teams? Did you feel the same way? Oh, I hated those teams. Okay. I respected them, but I hated them. But you hated them. No, I didn't like those teams. All right. And and the thing and there is a need to be strong and physical and tough in basketball. That being said, mm-hmm. you should still be trying to be better at basketball than the person you're playing against, mm-hmm. not just beat them up. And I think with the Pistons it came to a point where I don't know. I think it almost seemed like they accepted they weren't going to be better at basketball than Michael Jordan. So they were just going to beat him up. Mm. And that, and honestly, that was the same approach they took with the Lakers and Celtics in the previous years or in the playoffs and finals as well. You all might be better at basketball, but, we're going to be more physical and beat you up, and the rules allowed for that. Then, mm-hmm. no, I agree. I agree. Before we get out of here, I'm gonna bring somebody else into the conversation. We were talking about my man James Lewis, third uh-huh. host of Lance J Radio. I'm sitting here texting him. I'm about to bring him into the conversation real quick before we get out of here. Okay. All right. And we're going, to, we're going to talk to him for a couple minutes before we go. Okay. That work for you? That works for me. Let's do it. So, JB, I was telling you earlier, when you get a chance, I was going to shoot you James Lewis III's phone number to text him and ask him a question. But I did one better instead. I got him here with us now. So, mm-hmm. host of the Last J Radio Show. Always a pleasure to have him on with us, yes, James yes, Lewis. Sir. Always Thank a you pleasure. For taking a second to hop in with us. Oh yeah, man, I love it. It's always it's always great linking up with you, dudes. So off the bat, JV, I'm gonna let you ask the question because I wanted you to ask. So I, I'm not, I don't influence the question. Okay. All right. After the 1995 season. 
We're in 95 offseason. The Bulls make a trade to acquire Dennis Rodman. Once that tra- when, when when that trade happened, when the Bulls acquired Dennis Rodman, Mike Jones claims that he called you, Mr. James Lewis, and he said he called me that summer at my house in Columbus, Ohio. He, That's a fact. He called you and he said he made a he bold me prediction and said that the Bulls were going to win seventy games or more the next year. <laughs> that is a fact. I don't. I, you know what? I I don't. <sighs> He called me and promised that they would win 70 games. What did that you, absolutely happened. What did you say when he made that prediction? Did you think he was out of his mind? Well, I was a, I was a Bullets fan, so I was really I was really hyped about Jawan Howard and Chris Webber, who were an up-and-coming team. Hey, hey, and even though they got hey. swept by the Bulls, even though, they, Calvert, even though they got swept by the Bulls, all of those games were close, and Michael Jordan himself said, hey, this is a team to be reckoned with downstream until they broke everybody up. Um, but I said, I, I was a contrarian. I said, no way, no way that it's going to happen. The Bulls are going to be good. But there are other teams in the East that are going to compete, like the Knicks and the Bullets and some other teams. And I, I did not think that they would win 72 games. I thought that they would win the championship, but I didn't think that they would win 72 games. Now, I appreciate coming on and verifying that for me because I, I don't want... I, I knew I knew that that's why you called. I, I knew that that's where the conversation was going. I knew it was going there. I was like, I was like, this dude, I was like, this boy going to ask me, he's going to go back to when we were seniors in high school and he's going to ask me if, if I remember him calling me that summer and guaranteeing the, the, the Bulls are going to win 70 games. And, and it's true. That's he... That that happened, JB. That's that's a fact. I can't run from that. I I, I, I don't. Think it was right. I, I don't. I didn't doubt him. I, I I didn't doubt him. Uh, I'm and I'm pretty sure that like if we were friends, he would have called me and given me the same stuff. And I'd have probably told him he was crazy. But to me, I like like I remember that. I felt like that move made perfect sense. I felt like when you yeah, saw right. when you saw how they lost in the playoffs that year before. It was like there was no, you know, there was no no center in free agency or center that they could have acquired that was going to be able to match Shaq and Horace Grant in Orlando. They needed somebody with some muscle who could get rebounds, who could be physical, but not necessarily take shots away from Mike and Scotty. So to me, it was like, you know, like to me, I, I, I went into it like, okay, the problem with the Bulls was their starting for, their starting power forward was Tony Kukos. You get a real, you know, you put a real power forward on that team, they're going to be all right. And then in comes Dennis Rodman. Now, I, w- I didn't see 70 wins. I didn't see 72 and 10, but I did see, I did see championship. Like, it, I, I, I would never well, have I said think that. Jonesy... <laughs> I said repeatedly, Jonesy has a really good understanding of basketball. He's one of the better basketball minds that I've been around. And he doesn't know anything about football at all. (laughs) But his basketball acumen and knowledge is way up there. He knows more about basketball than I do. He really understands the plays. And he understood as a 17-year-old, 16 or 17, however old we were that summer, he understood exactly what 
But you, he told me exactly what you just said, JB. He said that Rodman will clear out. And because I, I was one of those people that said Rodman's crazy. It's not going to work. You see that he flamed out in San Antonio. Like it's, it's, it's not going to work. And, and, and Jonesy was the person that figured out that he would take so much pressure off of Kukoc and that he would, he would make them, he would basically be the person that did all of the dirty work while they were running the triangle. And Jonesy understood that as a, as a teenager. I have to give him credit for that. I can feel you smiling I, through I the phone. I appreciate your honesty on that. I feel you smile. <laughs> I can feel you smiling through the. I, I like you're on the phone right now. I hear your teeth, Mike. That's what I hear. You I mean, facts for facts. I gotta give him. I gotta give him the credit where it's due. I mean, he I, I did. Understand. He did say that. And like I said, when he texted me, I knew that this was going to be the first question that was asked. Like I knew that the question was coming. Now, James, the other thing I was bringing up, though, I'm not sure if you were actually watching the last dance last couple of weeks. Well, I'm sure you were. Of course. Everybody was. But sure. there was a point that was brought up. Me, me, that, you, and, me you, and 45 million other people. Oh, yeah. right now, yeah. Exactly. But there was a point that was brought up last night that you and I have talked about several times over the years we're talking basketball, where they were talking about Phil Jackson's effect on the team and on Michael Jordan's in particular, where he was a great individual player, but Phil's system got Mike to understand that playing with your teammate was, in the long term, more conducing, conducive to winning, and Mike bought into it. And they not only said that, but said that pointed out that that's rare for a great individual player to do. Right? How do you think that lesson could be learned by players today. Like, for me, I mean, that's such a loaded, that's such a typical Jonesy loaded question. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad I'm, I'm not the only one who notices that. All right, I'm, thank you. I'm a, little, I'm a little disappointed. Well, I'm not, I'm not surprised. But I'm a little disappointed there. Clean. That's a hard question to answer. It's just the errors. What, what really jumps off the page to me is that the errors were so much different. Um, so two things really jump off the page. What I didn't realize, because Jonesy, he and you were eight, nine years old when Jordan was playing in the 80s. I realized how much better Jordan was than everyone year two, year three. Never understood that um, until until really revisiting it. The other thing that jumps off the page is when you see Jordan going up against the Celtics and the Pistons, you know, you had guys like Bill Beer, you had Walton, these guys, McHale, these guys are all 6'11", 7 feet, 250, 260 pounds and take your head off. Whereas now guys that are 7 feet like KD are 225 and they're shooting three-pointers. So it's just, it's just a different game. I don't know if the game, the way that it's coached right now, and you and I talk offline so much about AAU basketball and how AAU basketball has really ruined a, a generation or maybe two generations of players. I don't know if players are instilled with those values early, the, the level of work ethic and the level of leadership uh, to, to kind of eclipse or compete with some of the things that Michael Jordan did because it's just a different era and in a different culture. Okay, that's a fair answer. Uh, yeah, so I know that you hate watching James Harden play and jack up 45 threes, and I know that you hate 
you you hate two guards that are six three and shoot a lot, and you hate point guards that are shoot first. You know, you hate John Wall. You hate guys like that. You hate Russell Westbrook. You just can't stand those guys. But the culture that they came up in is so much different than the culture that Jordan came up in. It's it's just a different culture. Whereas you can't even breathe on someone going to the lane right now. And and we've seen in in the Last Dance. I mean, Jordan's literally getting suplexed and body slammed in WWF by by the Pistons uh, going through them. Now, as, I, as I'm listening to you talk just now, though, especially as you were talking about AAU and coaching that these guys are receiving now, it was an old, almost, I guess, I don't, don't know how to describe it, but it was a phrase that used to be uttered a lot when Jordan was in college that almost epitomizes the difference between what guys are taught now and how, got, how coaching is approached now versus what it was then. They used to say of Michael Jordan, nobody in the country can stop him except Dean Smith when he was in college. Dean mm-hmm. Smith was Michael Jordan's coach, and they would say that because Dean Smith made him play team basketball instead of just taking every shot. That's yeah. what made him the greatest. And I think even when the comparisons with LeBron, LeBron, who's great in his own right, he didn't play for a Dean Smith in college. I mean, these people that play for the Wooden and the Smiths and the Krzyzewskis and some of these great coaches, they had, they had, I mean, if you look at a Grant Hill coming out of college, he had an advantage. He played for Coach K for three years. Um, You're going to be much more polished coming to the league if you play for one of those great coaches like Michael Jordan did. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So when you talk about how much better Jordan was in year two and year three, Jordan competed for three years in college against the best of the best in practices and then in ACC and national competition every game, he's absolutely going against Lynn, against Lynn Bias. Worthy. He's going against James Yeah, Worthy going against Sam James Worthy and Sam Perkins. In practice yep. every day. And these are all-time great guys. So your developmental period was a lot tougher, but at the same time it was at a level where, unlike a story about a T-Mac who went to the NBA out of college, I've heard him say at one point he he wasn't sure if he belonged. Michael Jordan never – he went through that developmental period where he learned how to play defense and fundamentals and team basketball. Right. But at the same time, he wasn't playing against guys who were capable of destroying his confidence either as a 17 even year old kid. Imagine – I mean, think of how good Kobe Bryant was, rest in peace. Imagine if how much better Kobe Bryant would have went had he played for Coach K for two years or, or played at UNC for a couple of years or one of these elite programs, even if he had gone to Nova for a couple of years, this is a very good program. Think of how much more polished he would have been from day one. Oh, I agree. I agree completely. And now, while the NCAA with so few guys staying three and four years anymore, that level of competition in the NCAA now is not the same as what we were discussing that it was back then when those guys are were, were playing. So now I think a good cop would be like what LaMelo Ball is doing playing in Australia for a year. That's essentially like those guys who are pros but not quite NBA-level pros is essentially the cop 
a, a fair cop to what Division One basketball was in those power schools back then. Yeah, I agree. I think B1 basketball is really taking a hit. Um, I'm not a fan of the one-and-done rule. I think that people, if you're 18, you're old enough to strap up and defend the country. So if you want to go straight to, to, to the NBA, I don't have a problem with that. I would like to see a rule don't be that if you do go to college that you have to stay for three years. Well, you have the opportunity to either right, you have the opportunity if you're if you're a Kobe or a Garnett or one of those guys that's good enough to go directly to the league, more power to you, sign sign the, the million the ten the one hundred million dollar shoe deal. But once you set foot on campus that you should be locked in for for three years. And one of the things about Jordan, I think, and you hit it on the head, Jonesy, his, his work ethic, and when, you, when you're in a structured environment where you have to get up every day and lift weights at the same time and go running every day and practice and really be a part of a team and have a coach that's riding you and a great coach that understands the fundamentals of the game, understands the X's and O's of the game, those are the things that made Jordan, as he aged and got into his 30s, he applied a lot of those same things to getting Horace Grant to be better to getting John Paxson to be better, to getting Steve Kerr to be better because he had learned from, from Dean Smith, one of the all-time greats, of how to run a practice and, and how to prepare mentally and physically for a game. And these kids that are playing AAU, Jonesy, they're not, they're not doing that. They're just, they're just coming in um, off of partying the last night or hitting the J or going out doing whatever they're doing, and they're coming in there jacking up 33s against somebody that's not playing any defense. And those are not the leadership cornerstones that you see of those that are highly successful in any professional sport. You see these players today, and they're like Jordan will talk about the fundamentals and the things that he learned under Phil Jackson and Dean Smith. You see these AAU players today, and the player and the coaches that they're calling good coaches are coaches that just gave them the ball. You know, you you right. if you talk to Michael Jordan about you know, what he liked about Dean Smith. What did he learn under Dean Smith? You're going to get a lesson. You're going to get, you know, you're, you're going to, you're going to get a clinic in itself of what, what he learned. And it same would go for it. You brought up Grant Hill and coach K, you know, player, you know, guys like that, you know, Bayheim, uh, um, you know, uh, coaches like that. And, and, you talk- and not just Jordan. I mean, you, and you, you mentioned AI. I mean, AI played great coach John Thompson. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar played for John Wooden. Mm-hmm. You're talking about a lot of these all-time greats played for for fantastic coaches that that really set them up with the work ethic and and the ability to understand how to prepare as as an adult. And um, as you know, even with Kobe, who was great, he wasn't great for several years mm-hmm. because he had to learn those things. Definitely had to learn those things and probably, you know, really came into his own once he got Phil Jackson, you know, when it was dealt, you know, like when you, when you, when you heard Kobe interviews and he talks about being coaches, you know, the majority of the things that he talks about is what he learned with Phil. You didn't see too many times, you know, Kobe wasn't quoting Dell Harris too many times. You know, right. and and that's not right. right. And that's not to say that Dell Harris was necessarily a bad coach, but right. you know, you you know, it's just it's just the difference in you know what, in in what was being taught and how he was being taught and what Kobe actually responded to. 
But, yeah, I mean, Dell Harris looked like Lieutenant Frank Drevin from uh, from Naked Gun Thirty Three and a Third. I mean, he's not someone that that you're going to take take seriously. Um, I, if I remember that team, you had you had Cedric Sabalos on that team and Nick Van Exel. Those those are not necessarily the guys. And I think going back to what you said, Kobe coming into the league, eighteen years old. Um, you have to learn how to prepare as a professional, and I and I think that's what really separated Jordan and made it worth those years that he spent at UNC. He came in day one knowing how to get dressed, how to be at practice on time, how to, how to be at the press conference, um, how to handle his business. And you learn those things when you play for a great coach and at a great institution. If you come out of high school, out of the AAU game, you're not going to be as polished, and you're going to spend the first three or four years really getting those things down. Um, so that gave Jordan really a head start where he's one of the few players jumped in, in – you're more of a historian than I, but when I saw Bird and Magic both say year two, this guy's the best player in the league. Like they basically bowed down to a second year player. Like that's, that's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. I can't think of anyone in all lifetime since Jordan, who was the best player in the NBA year two, year three. The only comparative I can make in any sport is Tiger Woods, which is a sport that's not a team sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tiger Woods was the best golfer in the world year two, year three. Patrick Mahomes has a chance to be the best quarterback that we've ever seen if he wins another Super Bowl year two, year three, and putting up 50 touchdowns a year. But it's just not something that you see where someone comes in and they're dominant almost immediately. Yeah. No, agree. Absolutely. Now, if you let me, before we get, let you get out of here, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit because the weekend that just passed was NFL draft. And Now, I acknowledge. Are you getting into my wheelhouse? We're getting into your wheelhouse. You do have a good football acumen. I won't go as far as you saying you know more than me about football. But you know better than you in football. It's not. I'm I'm better than you in football. Like Jordan's. It's like comparing Jordan to LeBron at basketball. Like there's no comparison to football. You're better than me at basketball. I give that up freely. I'm happy to give that up. This is the conversation you're going to start at. Especially college football. It's not even. If at college football, I'm a 99 out of 100. Jonesy's probably like an 87, 86 out of 100. I'll give you college football. I will give you that. College football, I will give that one to you. You got me there. NFL, not so much. College, you're no slouch in NFL. You're not, you're not at my level, but you're no slouch. But I assume you want to talk about, about uh, Jalen Hurts. Actually, I don't. I don't. Okay. My question for you. Because I've seen a lot of film on Jalen Hurts. <laughs> yeah. But I don't. We've talked about that a little bit already in this show. And honestly, at this point, I feel like best case scenario for the Eagles, you don't see Jalen Hurts more than two, three snaps a game. So, you think he'll play the Taysom Hill type role? That's best case scenario. Carson huh. Wentz never finishes sixteen games, so you're going to see Jalen Hurts play at least three games every year. He finished Probably three games average. this last season. Carson Wentz played 16 he played games? 16, he played 16 games? He played 16 his rookie year and 16 last year. But to James's point, at some point in all of his seasons, there's been an injury that's caused mm-hmm. him to miss time. No, that is true. You keep right. you keep Jadavian Clowney off the back of his head, he'll be fine. 
Yeah, that's that's true. That was that was a cheap shot. But what, what was the question you wanted to ask, Jonesy? But my my question for you is this: real simple, not limited to just what was done in the draft, but in this unusual off season in general, what team not named Tampa Bay do you think has done the most to make themselves a better team? I, I like I like Dallas getting C.D. Lamb. I think that that's a huge pick for Dallas. C.D. Lamb's very explosive. He reminds me a lot of Dez Bryant, the way that he gets out of his breaks. Amari Cooper is more of a downfield threat, so having C.D. Lamb, who's not the speed guy, but really more the power guy, the 50-50 ball guy, that gives someone like Dakota Prescott, who I'm not a big fan of, another weapon that that's needed, and I think they've made. I think that Dallas had a had a strong draft. I like what the Ravens did. The Ravens got a the whole slew of players. They had a lot of picks. Um, they picked up my guy from Ohio State, um, our, our our running back. I think that I think that that was a good pick. They also picked up a linebacker from Ohio State, who I think very very highly of. Um, I like what the Ravens did with their draft. I like what my Colts did with the draft. I think picking up Taylor from Wisconsin was a was a very very good move um, for a team that has that's bringing that's getting rid of Jacoby Brissett and bringing in Philip Rivers, who was very turnover and interception prone. Uh, they also got Pittman out of USC. So those were three teams. I thought that the Redskins should have traded. I mean, I should have either traded down or drafted Tua. I'm not very high on Dwayne Haskins, but when you see what when you picture when you factor Chase Young into that defense that the Redskins have, they have a very good chance to be similar to San Francisco on defense. And they got a lot of weapons for Haskins on offense. They picked up like four wide receivers, and um, and even signed Randy Moss's son to, to play tight end as a UFA. So those are kind of the four teams that that jumped out to me that I think that strategically are making some good moves as far as who are we, where are we going with our team? Colt, they're saying that we're going to be a power run team. We have Mack, we have Taylor, we're going to run the ball 40 times a game. We have a great offensive line. Dallas is saying that they're going to continue to be explosive and um, look to outscore opponents. And then you have the Redskins that said that we're going to be a defensive star or team while we're getting our act together on the offensive side of the ball, but we're going to have an elite defense, and, and I like all of those moves. That's awesome. That's awesome. James Lewis, I want to say thank you, my friend. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for jumping in, man. We got to – look, I'm, I'm always man, down. I'm always down thanks. for guests to come to give Jonesy grief. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for having me, man. It's, 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 it's my pleasure. Oh, man. Oh, man. Appreciate you. All right. Well, look, man, we are, right. we are out of town, man. We're, we're right up against it, man. All right, let's get out of here. All right. Hey, look, tell us what you think of this show. Hit us up on Twitter, and, and, and that's it. O underscore D underscore discourse. Remember, you can download this podcast wherever you find your favorite podcast. My name is Brown. That's Jonesy. We'll be back next week on Offense, Defense, and Discourse. Peace, y'all. You feeling this podcast? To hear this and more, go to SoundCloud.com slash B-I-T-W Sports or on iTunes or Apple Podcasts and search Best in the World Sports. 
The preceding was a production of the Lance J Radio Network and Best in the World Sports, a division of Definitive Visions Multimedia. The opinions and views expressed are strictly those of the host and do not represent the views of Lance J Radio Network or NBC Sports Radio.